Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. Newcastle Library's Heritage Collection contains more than 440,000 items in various formats from mayoral portraits and snowballs plate glass negatives to the original Menzies Declaration and the Creer and Berkeley Archive of Subdivision Maps. A wide range of Newcastle's stories are presented in the Library's Heritage Collection. Join us as we explore one piece from the Library's fascinating Rare Book Room. Welcome to our Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. I am Kerry Shaw, Heritage Collections Digitisation Specialist at Newcastle Libraries. In this episode of Treasures from the Rare Book Room, we are discussing the opera great Florence Ostrel. I am joined by Hilary Oliver from the Florence Ostrel Society and Delma White, a former student of Madame Ostrel's at the Newcastle Conservatorium of Music. This chat was inspired by the work of the Florence Ostrel Society and the Florence Ostrel Archive which forms part of the Newcastle Library's treasures. Florence Ostrel was born Florence Mary Wilson in 1892 in Richmond, Victoria, the same suburb as another great opera singer, Dame Nellie Melba. Florence's father, Wilhelm Lindholm, was a native of Gotland, Sweden. He boarded a ship to Sydney, and by the time he arrived, he was William Wilson, known as Billy Wilson. Florence's mother, Helena Flecknell, married Billy Wilson in Sydney, and they later moved to Melbourne. Florence was their second-born. Walter, her elder brother, was tragically killed in a goods yard accident at age 10. First of all, we are going to talk about Florence's early life. You know, she was born in 1892, and in 1895, it's not actually, they don't really know why, but Dad moved from Melbourne with their son, Walter, to Sydney. A year later, Walter was playing in the goods yard at Rockdale Railway Station and unfortunately one of the trucks started to move and tragically he was killed. Mm. Poor Florence. She would have been about oh, four years old, do you think, Delma? I think so, only about four. Terrible tragedy for a young girl. Yes, I wonder if she really understood it though. I'm not sure. She would have missed her dad and brother mm, because she'd... they'd moved to Sydney. And the mother was absolutely grief-stricken. It was a difficult time for her, but after that, she refused to mention the names Walter or William ever, ever again. And she started up an underclothing business from home. So that's where Florence probably learned how to sew. Sew, yes. And Wilson, Billy Wilson the dad, he spent the remainder of his life near Helena's relations in New South Wales. But it's not recorded that Florence ever saw him again. Isn't that incredible? Mm, It is. But anyway, Helena married in 1903, which was Florence would have been 11 years old. And she married John Fowers, who was 17 years her junior. Mm. No one seems to be 
particularly concerned that Helena was still married. But in those days, there were no computers or internet systems, so yeah. Mr. John Fowers was a clever man. He graduated at the age of 18 with a BA, which is a Bachelor of Arts, from the American University in Beirut. He was frugal, authoritarian, had poor English and was deeply religious. Mm. He had converted to Methodism. Fowers had a fine singing voice and at home he sang and accompanied himself on a Syrian stringed instrument. And Helena, the mum, she had a lovely voice. They'd have had a wonderful time around all his singing and, and the mother's singing. I can't see how Florence managed not to be able to sing. Yes, and in those days, Florence left school at the age of 14. Which was the usual thing at, at that time of, the, uh, of their life. Mm, because she's meant to learn household businesses, <laughs> I suppose one would say. <laughs> Florence's public singing debut occurred at a Christmas concert in her stepfather's Methodist church. One of the members of the congregation later suggested that she commence singing lessons as her voice was soaring over everyone else's. In 1913, she entered the Ballarat competition and sang very well. Adjudicator Fritz Hart, an English musician, praised her voice. Two years later, in 1915, upon entering a game, she won first prize and the report was full of glowing praise. After winning, Florence commenced studies with Elise Wiedemann, following the teacher to the University of Melbourne in 1917 to continue her studies. Florence had her first singing lessons. And they were with her piano teacher's wife, Margaret Cavendish, mm. who wasn't known in the musical circles. Mm. Her second teacher was George Andrews, who had higher credentials, and Florence was 19 years old. Mr Andrews taught her diaphragmatic breathing. That's correct. And that's what she continued through later on with the students. Yes, and that's very important to have your breath down around your waist, and you expand out. After the Ballarat competition in 1913, so she was 21, the adjudicator, Mr Fritz Hart, remarked on the purity of her voice and recommended that she study with Elise Wiedemann, who had studied with Madame Mathilde Marchese. Mm. Guess who also studied with Madame Marchese in Vienna? Ah, Dame Nellie Melba. Yes, and what a magnificent voice she had. Elise was the wife of the Austro-Hungarian consul in Melbourne. In 1914, Florence enrolled in a three-year singing course. She was the winner of the 1914 Albert Street Conservatorium mm. Entrance Competition. In 1919, virtuoso flautist John Amadio and Florence took over from Peter Dawson, a famous baritone, to provide medleys of classical and popular items between films at the cinema in Melbourne, often twice daily. After a bout of Spanish influenza that same year, Florence sailed to New York to study Italian opera under Gabrielle Sabella. In 1920, Florence set sail to the United States to study Italian opera with Gabriele Sibella. During this time, she heard the great Enrico Caruso at mm. the Met. Now, things didn't go quite well in America. Can you imagine getting to New York from Sydney, Delma? Yes, about six weeks, I think, on a, a ship, actually. 
Yes, she, it wouldn't have been very pleasant at all. No, she actually sailed to Vancouver and then took a train from Vancouver to New York. I don't know how long that would have taken. Mm, ages. So she wasn't altogether happy there. However, six weeks later, Mr. John Amadio came along. And the decision was, should Florence return to Australia? And if she did, it would have looked as if it was a failure. So she decided to try her luck in the mother country because John Amadio was going there as well. He was a famous flautist. And I wonder, Delma, living with a flautist, how this would impact on her singing. I think that would have helped her get the purity of Purity of tone, Mm, purity of tone and right on pitch with the flute. Now, when they arrived in London, she got an agent, as one did, and the agent said to Florence, you have to audition for Covent Garden, for the Covent Garden Syndicate. Florence was a bit nervous. So finally, the agent said, Florence, you're going to be at Covent Garden at 10am Tuesday. So poor Florence, she went off a little bit nervous. And the first aria she sang was Elizabeth's Greeting from Tannhäuser, which is by Richard Wagner. And she said, I let it rip. I fairly staggered them. That's what she wrote to her mum. The second aria was from Aida, Ritorna Vincitor. And she wrote to her mum, I nearly took the roof off. (laughs) So clearly everybody was happy. But at that time in 1920, things were a little difficult because the Royal Opera House Covent Garden relies on funding from private patrons rather than the government. And of course... Coming out of World War One and the pandemic, the flu mm. pandemic, it was very difficult. So the opera singers formed this other company called the British National Opera Company. It was, must have been very difficult for her to pay to get to the USA. And I think that she performed in concerts, they had little concerts and all such things to raise money. And I was surprised that she actually sang not only operatic work, but at the picture theatre, she sang uh, popular music as well. And that's something that a lot of opera singers will not do, is sing pop music. But I mean, when we're looking at pop music, it was possibly I'll Take You Home Again, Kathleen, or something of that sort of genre. But to raise money, she um, she did concerts in between the films at the movie theatres. So that was very interesting, to raise her money. After the audition, she was offered a contract and she was paid £30 a week. And in those days, that is 10 times what an average person was earning. And so with that money, she had to study Wagnerian operas and not do any concerts or performances without the permission of the syndicate. So she did start to earn a significant sum of money. Some money, mm. which, I mean, £30, 30 pound then was a lot of money. Yes. A lot of money at that stage. Once in London, Florence auditioned at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden. She was immediately offered a contract and, as was the fashion, advised to change her name to Florence Ostral in recognition of her Australian origins. She received a weekly salary of £30, 10 times the average income. She was restricted to only appearing in concerts put on by the Covent Garden Syndicate. She was also to study the Ring Cycle at the London School of Opera. 
Her first appearances in these operas gave her celebrity status. A recording contract was signed with HMV in 1922. She would go on to record 155 times. 99 of these would be released publicly. When Austral sang Goethe Dammerung, which is the fourth opera in the Ring Cycle by Richard Wagner, one of the critics' verdicts was, Austral is the finest Brunhilde that London has heard for many years, mm. as well as the most beautiful. Recording the 154 recordings would have been extremely difficult. She did this over, over a number of years, of course, but Delma Let's talk about how she did it. She first of all sang into a horn thing. Mm. Then later she was squished in to the orchestra <laughs> with this huge microphone in front of her and the conductor in the pit very, very close by. It would have been extremely difficult because nowadays... Oh, they record the, the music and then you have your headphones on and you've got... All the equipment there, totally different to what she would have done then. Yes. And Austral sang at the Royal Albert Hall 24 times. Melba sang there 26 times. Right. And she sang once in front of King George V and Queen Mary. Mm. And then afterwards she was presented to them. Then she sang at Crystal Palace. And that was for the Handel Festivals Mm. where there were 2,350 choristers can you imagine it was huge and she was in big demand dame nelly melba heard florence Austral, and it is recorded that she said that this is one of the wonder voices of the world imagine that incredible and she sang with melba in a concert later Austral didn't say favourable things about melba but i think that sometimes stories do get a little bit muddled when Austral was in America, planning to go to London, Austral's parents wrote to Dame Nellie Melba asking if she would hear her sing. The reply was, Dame Nellie Melba would be delighted to hear Miss Fawaz sing and the fee is three guineas. However, things changed, of course, because when Melba heard her, she said, this is one of the wonder voices of the world. And it was. A Wagnerian opera singer must have the ability to sing for four hours over an orchestra of 90 instruments and to be heard at the end of the hall. So that is how big Austral's voice was. The demands were huge. She was going from all places by train, by bus, by car. And in America, they loved her. So she used to go to Chicago. She loved Chicago. Chicago. And there, one time, she was catching a train. And uh, she saw that all the orchestra people were buying their own tickets to go to the next city. So she went up to the counter and paid the lot, paid for the lot. She was a very, very generous, easygoing, kind lady. In 1925, Florence's parents visited her in the UK. They knew nothing of her relationship with John or the fact that John was still married to an Australian residing wife. In that same year, John's wife, Leonora, filed for divorce. After the divorce, John and Florence planned to marry, but Florence's stepfather, a staunch Methodist, believed that to marry a divorced man was not possible. It is believed that there was an argument between daughter and parents, and sadly, Florence's mother died before they could reconcile. The divorce was granted in September that year, with Florence and John then marrying on the 15th of December 1925. 
1929, Florence was invited to sing at the Three Choirs Festival at the Worcester Cathedral. She was to sing Elijah and the Messiah, but they cancelled her contract. And the reason was, some years ago, her name appeared in some divorce proceedings. That's that's correct, because divorce wasn't considered uh, very good at that stage, so that would be a bit of a stigma against her. Oh, yes. But she was too busy preparing her trip to America to actually get terribly upset about it, but uh, I think John Amadio was upset about it. Five years later, life began to take a turn for the worse for Florence. In 1930, she began to suffer from stiffening in her legs and weaknesses in her body. She had her contract to sing at the Berlin State Opera cancelled because her German pronunciation was unacceptable to a native German-speaking crowd. In 1931, the Great Depression was the catalyst for her recording contract with HMV to be cancelled. It must have been terrible, Delma, to be rejected from the Berlin State Opera oh, as she was. Oh, tragedy. However, when she did get back to England and she found out that she had multiple sclerosis... She continued to sing. She sang at the, it was called the Metropolitan Opera Company. Company. Mm. And she sang Tannhäuser, The Flying Dutchman, Tristan and Isolde, all Wagnerian and all big. And at the same time, she sang twice at the proms and at the Palladium, excerpts from Wagnerian operas. So she was pretty busy, even Mm. though she's just discovered the reason why her legs were stiff or she was feeling unwell. She had MS, the poor darling. Mm, I didn't realise she sang at the proms. I mean, that's really an opera singer singing at the proms. She must have been very well revered. Yes. In April 1934, Florence and John sailed to Australia for a gruelling tour of the country. In 1936, they left Australia for England, sailing via New Zealand and America. On returning to London, Florence found that she had been replaced as Brunhilde. When World War II broke out, she focused on performing for the war effort. She carried out canteen work and made impossible journeys to all sorts of -of out-of-the-way places to sing for the soldiers. It was in these years her voice started to fail, as did her marriage. These events proved to be the catalyst for a new life. She returned to Australia in 1946. In 1952, Florence accepted an offer from Eugene Goossens, director of the Sydney Conservatorium, to join the teaching staff of the Newcastle Conservatorium of Music. So, Delma, when Florence joined the teaching staff of the Newcastle Conservatorium of Music in 1952, what was it like? Well, it was very different because the first thing when I walked in, I'd won a scholarship to study with Madam and uh, I must admit, I didn't know the greatness of this lady and when I walked in, the first thing she said was, I don't want to teach you, you're too young. She didn't believe in children learning when they were very young. She actually started singing at 17 and she used to tell me that she had to walk a long way to her lessons and so obviously they mustn't have had a car which not many people did at that stage when she started learning. How how old were you Delma? I was only 15. 15. And so she really wanted 
people who were in their 20s who had an idea of where their career was going to go. And I was 15. And anyhow, she said, oh, sing something for me. So I sang. And she said, oh, well, I will keep you. And I thought, oh, that's very nice. (laughs) So that was quite good. But she was a very kind lady. She didn't yell or scream at you. She didn't play piano. She just sat in her chair the whole time. You know, as most teachers get up, walk around and do the arm waving and the breath showing you where breathing's going and all that sort of thing. But she just sat in her chair the whole time and she had an accompanist. He came in and played for me all the time. What were the scales and what uh, exercises were you Scales and mainly conconies, conconies. I didn't do back eye or Machises or that, but I did the Conconi. And what about Ariantica? We did mainly our songs. She was a funny lady because she didn't like some teachers give you a lot of songs. She sort of concentrated on exercises and my breathing and such. But she, um, you know, we did mainly a lot of ballads. And Caro Mio Ben? Caro, of course. Caro, doesn't everybody do Caro? <laughs> Pele Gloria and mainly Handel, some of the Handel Messiah work. Um, it was quite good. And what about um, Oh My Beloved Father in yes, English? Yes, Oh My Beloved Father, but in English. She didn't teach me in language there but she did with a cara of course because have you read the words of cara the english words you wouldn't <laughs> want to sing them in english so we sang them in the italian and you know things like that and green hills of somerset banks of allen waters things like that but she stayed with mainly the song until she felt it was perfected well, Very- that's a really good idea i mm. mean Personally, I remember learning Caro Mio Ben and I think I was singing that for three months. Yes, yes. <laughs> and that was the sort of thing you did. You did the same songs, but she was a delightful lady. She was there from 52 to about 57 at the conservatorium and Mr Lobb was in charge of the conservatorium. But it wasn't as it is now. It was a hut it was just a hut and you could hear through the walls and you didn't get to the conservatorium unless you are of a certain standard or won a scholarship. They just didn't take, couldn't walk in and say, I want to learn at the conservatorium. They only took a very minimal number of people for piano and singing. And uh, it was interesting. She was a very kind lady. Were you aware that she had MS? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I knew there was some, she wasn't well. She wasn't well because she wasn't always well when I got there. But she would just sit and very kindly we'd go on with the the lesson. I can remember she used to close her eyes all the time when I sang and she'd wave her her arms around in the air and that was quite funny. You know, you'd be sitting there and here's this lady. I'd think, has she gone to sleep or what is happening, you know? But that's how she, she wanted to listen to you with her eyes shut and conducting you. But it was very interesting. But I had no idea at that stage that I was learning from someone who had such greatness and had such ability, had so much experience and work. And I don't think it was ever mentioned that she'd had breast cancer in the late 1950s and had had a mastectomy. Mm, Incredible. mm. But, you know, she's had this portrait, wonderful portrait that was 
at the Conservatorium here mm. in Newcastle, mm. and that's been gifted to the National Portrait Gallery in, in um, Canberra, and it looks fabulous because they've cleaned all up the frame and it looks fabulous. Mm. But it, she was an artist struck down in the prime of her career, really, wasn't yes, she? Yes, she yeah. was. It's, uh, it was just sad, but I don't think really any of us who went there and learnt there realised what this woman had achieved in her life. Mm. And I think that was really sad to say we had a woman of such greatness in our city and didn't take advantage of her knowledge at that stage. Yes, know? and she she really was at her time a superstar. But in the 20s and 30s, you didn't really earn very much money as an opera singer. Uh, this day mm. and age, you know, mm. um, great opera singers such as Sutherland or Kiri Takanawa, they earn big bickies but because their careers don't last forever. Mm. And also you get money from your royalties, from your recordings. Many people in those days, Delma, wouldn't record because they yeah. felt that their voices... Uh, well, they were so funny. The recordings many a time were really very scratchy and very funny and so they didn't do the recording. And also, like now, all these people who are on the, the rise, even a pop star or anyone like that, you get so much, see so much on television you see them all on television all the time. So if that was in the 1920s, she would have been perhaps on television and... Well, she's on YouTube. <laughs> Unfortunately, no face, but the recordings are on YouTube and they've been digitised and they sound absolutely fantastic. Right. But her life was sad in some ways because her brother was killed and her father left the family. She never reconciled with her mother who on her tombstone is written... Mother of Florence Austral. Mm. And she loved John Amadio dearly, but the marriage failed mm. and her voice was no longer. And she had no money. So she died in the 1968 in the Mayfield nursing home and she died intestate and penniless. Truly, in mm. at Mayfield. Yes. You know, he's a lady of such of achievement. Such and all there is is a plaque out at Beresfield that says Florence Mary Amadio and the dates. It was so sad to see. It made me weep. But it's not that as if she hasn't been recognised. There are two biographies and there are two portraits. So that is something, I suppose. Mm. But let's hope that... In the future, everybody can celebrate and listen to this magnificent voice. Thanks so much for listening to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. To access and browse Newcastle Library's collections, please visit our website at newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. To view our heritage collection, just Google Hunter Photobank. The online collection is constantly being added to as items are digitised and loaded, so be sure to visit often. This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production. 